Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in section 51 through 57. There is a lot going on in these sections. And so what we're going to do first is talk about the big picture, especially as it relates to Zion. So Bryce, why don't you start us off talking about the big picture in these sections? When Mike and I first sat down and decided we were going to do a podcast, and then when the year rolled over to Doctrine and Covenants, you kind of have in the back of your head what you know is coming up, and the big ones, and you start to feel uh, a lot of anxiety to make sure you do it right, because there are major things, and you need to be—the message needs to be worthy. Well, today is one of those for me. I knew that this podcast was coming, and it has weighed on my soul ever since— I feel like Jacob. I worry that I'm going to stumble because of my great anxiety that I have regarding this subject. Um, If you've been listening to our podcast, you know how I feel about the story that Jesus loves to tell. Um, Every Old Testament prophet that ever looked at his own people and saw failure and apostasy and leaving the truth must have found comfort in the story of a group that would succeed. Jesus has been telling the story of the Latter-day Saints and the triumph of Zion in the latter days, and you find that story repeatedly taught in the Scriptures. So let's be early Latter-day Saints, and I'm going to hand you the Book of Mormon from the very beginning, and notice what you will read as you start reading the Book of Mormon and start hearing these hints at the story of the Latter-day Saints and the success of Zion. So turn with me to 3 Nephi chapter 16. When Jesus appears in the American continent, he starts telling the Nephites the great story of Zion's triumph. So 3 Nephi chapter 16, he starts using key words like gather, I will gather them, verse 5. Notice verse 7, he keeps hinting at this, in the latter days shall the truth come unto the Gentiles, that the fullness of these things shall be made known unto them. He keeps telling the story of the Latter-day Saints, the triumph of Zion in our day. He continues that story in chapter 20, and notice the key words he keeps using. He talks about, verse 13, a scattering and a gathering. Verse 14, a land of inheritance. He talks about the scattered people that will be gathered. Verse 22, this people will I establish in this land unto the fulfilling of the covenant which I made with your father Jacob. It shall be a new Jerusalem. Jesus has been telling that story throughout all of time, the story of the new Jerusalem. Chapter 21, he gets a little bit more specific. Verse 4, he talks about the need for a free country, hinting at the Revolutionary War and the founding of the Constitution and this country. It is wisdom in the Father that they should be established in this land and be set up as a free people by the power of the Father. We needed a free country. And then in verse 9, in that day, for my sake, shall the Father work a work which shall be a great 
and a marvelous work. Have you heard that phrase before? Does that ring a bell with you? Jesus is telling the Nephites about a great and a marvelous work. He talks about a servant, which individually could be all of us, but it sure seems to hint at the life of Joseph Smith in verse 10. The life of my, this is 3 Nephi 21.10, the life of my servant shall be in my hand. Wherefore, they shall not hurt him, though he shall be marred because of them. Yet I will heal him, for I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. That is nearly a word-for-word quotation from the loss of the manuscript where Joseph Smith loses what he's already translated the Book of Mormon. So he's clearly pointing to the restoration and Joseph Smith. And then again, he starts talking about verse 22, I will establish my church among them. I will give them this land. And then verse 23, he keeps saying this, we're going to build a city, which shall be called the New Jerusalem. And they will gather my people in, verse 24, into the New Jerusalem. So if you're an early Latter-day Saint and Joseph Smith handed you the Book of Mormon, wouldn't you kind of get curious about this New Jerusalem, especially when you heard Jesus talk about the latter days and a New Jerusalem? Turn to the Book of Ether. What's fascinating is Ether watched his own people fall into apostasy. Ether will witness the downfall of the Jaredite nation. And that must have depressed him as he reported that. So turn to chapter 13 of Ether. Why in the world does this chapter find its way into the book of Ether? It must have brought Ether great comfort in knowing that someone was going to succeed. And so Ether prophesies in verse 6 that a new Jerusalem should be built upon this land. End of verse 8, that they should build up a holy city unto the Lord, like unto the Jerusalem of old. They shall no more be confounded until the end come when the earth shall pass away. Verse 10, and then cometh the new Jerusalem. And blessed are they who dwell therein, for it is they whose garments are white. So the Book of Mormon reveals all these little hints to a city in the latter days. So if you were reading the Book of Mormon, wouldn't you be curious about this city and our destiny and what's going to happen in our day? And it wasn't just the saints. When Columbus came over, he wrote in his journal that God had called him to find the land where the new Jerusalem would be built. And so it's not just the Latter-day Saints. There were people that came here hoping there's a new start, a new place. And I think that message did the Spirit ratify that when missionaries went and taught that. People felt it. I even feel this talking about it, this, this hopefulness, this expectation that there's a better way, a better place to live. Yeah. And so when the dispensation opens and Joseph Smith starts receiving revelations. Obviously, it's going to be a matter of curiosity. So the Lord continues to hint at it. We first found a hint in section 28. So this is where Oliver Cowdery is sent on a mission to the Lamanites, which will result in the conversion of Sidney Rigdon and so many Kirtland saints. But right in the middle of this section, we find the Lord hinting again. Look at verse 9. Now behold, this is section 28, verse 9. Now behold, I say unto you that it is not revealed, and no man knoweth where the city of Zion shall be built, but it shall be given hereafter. 
Behold, I say unto you that it shall be on the borders by the Lamanites. So he's already starting to hint at where we're going to build the city. You're going on a mission to the Lamanites, and that's near where we're going to build the city. So then, again, we pick up a lot of little insights in section 42, verse 9. Until the time shall come when it shall be revealed unto you from on high, when the city of the new Jerusalem shall be prepared, that ye may be gathered in one, that ye may be my people, and I will be your God. He keeps hinting at it. We're going to build this city. Notice we get the same section, 42, but go to verse 35. For the purpose of purchasing lands for the public benefit of the church and building houses of worship and building up of the new Jerusalem, which is hereafter to be revealed, that my covenant people may be gathered in one in that day when I shall come to my temple. Again, another reference to we're going to build the city. Keep going in section 42 down to verse 62. Thou shalt ask and it shall be revealed unto you in mine own due time where the new Jerusalem shall be built. Now, given all that's in the Book of Mormon and all these continual hints from the Lord, wouldn't you, if you were an early Latter-day Saint, kind of feel this is your destiny? This is where we're headed? So go to section 45. Now, we did a long podcast on this Zion, that what's going to happen in Zion. We're not going to go back there, but I just want to reference all those wonderful scriptures from 66 through 71 about the new Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God. The glory of the Lord shall be there and the terror of the Lord shall be there. So he keeps hinting. Turn with me now to section 48. Out of the blue, he's talking about, hey, you need to stay where you're at right now because you're going to need some money. Verse 4, it must needs be necessary that you save all the money that you can, that ye obtain all that you can in righteousness, that in time you may be enabled to purchase land for inheritance, even the city. The place is not yet revealed. But after your brethren come from the east, there are to be certain men appointed, and to them it shall be revealed, and they shall be appointed to purchase the lands. So the Lord is saying, you need to save your money because we're going to buy land in Zion. I think they're looking at this very much literally. They're looking at this thinking, we are going to build Zion. It's going to be in our day. Clearly the Lord's saying, we've got to actually buy it with money. So it's not this mystical pie-in-the-sky experience we're going to have in the next life, but it's something that's real, with real wood timbers and roads. In other words, very material. A city that we build ourselves. So now turn to section 52. Now the Lord says, the very next conference, look at verse 2, the next conference which shall be held in Missouri. Now he's naming the location. Go out to Missouri. And notice the hint here, upon the land which I will consecrate unto my people. So that's a huge piece of the puzzle. Go to Missouri. That's where Zion's going to be built. And then he's specific in verse 5, it shall also, inasmuch as you are faithful, be made known unto them the land of your inheritance. 
So he sends a whole group of missionaries. The very end of section 52, verse 42, ye shall assemble yourselves together to rejoice upon the land of Missouri, which is the land of your inheritance, which is now in the hands of your enemies. I think that's also foreshadowing yep. at the end. But behold, I, the Lord, will hasten the city in its time. Now, if you start reading with an eye of, I know what's going to happen, you begin to hear the Lord is starting to prepare us for a struggle. Go to section 54. As he sends them out to Missouri, notice verse 8, take your journey into the regions westward into the land of Missouri. And then he throws this hint down. Verse 10, again, be patient in tribulation. He sends them to Missouri, and he's already talking about being patient in tribulation. So now we get to section 57. Section 57 is the fulfillment of all these promises that the Lord would reveal the location. As soon as Joseph Smith arrives in Independence, Jackson County, Missouri, the Lord says in verse 1, which is the land of Missouri, which is the land which I have appointed and consecrated for the gathering of the saints. Wherefore, now here's the moment everyone's been waiting for up till this point. This is the land of promise and the place for the city of Zion. Right there, verse 2. All these times he said, I'm not going to tell you. It'll be revealed someday. This is the day. This is the place for the city of Zion. Verse 3, he says, the place which is now called Independence is the center place, and a spot for the temple is lying westward. So now, verse 4, start buying the land. You need to purchase the land. And what's interesting, this is, very, is a, a great foreshadowing, Notice in verse 8, he starts using the word plant. Verily I say unto you, let my servant Sidney Gilbert plant himself. End of verse 8, they may need to plant themselves. In verse 10, W.W. Phelps is supposed to be planted in this place. Verse 14, let those of whom I have spoken be planted. Now, that's a very significant reference that go to Zion and plant yourself. He says it again in 15. So let's walk through what happened in Zion. Because one of the most important things that comes out of a study of the Doctrine and Covenants, we have an obligation to pick up where they failed to learn the lesson they didn't learn. I totally understand that if the Lord were doing this to me, I would rush out to Zion and I would start building the place. I don't, I don't think they could have thought anything else. They're going to go start building the place. But their failure to bring about Zion is the one of the critical lessons we have to get out of the study of the Doctrine and Covenants, because someone is going to be successful. Someone is going to walk back in there and pick up where they left off. We owe it to them. So let's just let me just walk you through what's going to happen in the next 2 years. This is now summer 
of 31. By the summer of 33, the mobs will have started the violence. They will have forced the brethren that were there to sign an agreement to leave. The saints will be kicked off their land. We have two years between the moment Joseph Smith is standing on Jackson County for the first time and them getting kicked off their lands. So what happened? Starting in verse 1 of section 58, he says, I'm going to speak to you concerning this land. And the first thing out of his mouth is, he that is faithful in tribulation. Verse 3, behold with your natural eyes for your present time, the designs of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. Verse 4, after much tribulation come the blessings. And I can't help but read verse 5 as a specific hint. Remember this, which I tell you before that you may lay it to heart and receive that which is to follow. He's already talking about tribulation. Now, my dear friends, with every ounce of my soul, I say to you, their tribulation must compel us to learn the lesson they didn't learn. Otherwise, their tribulation was in vain, and we have failed them. We must learn the lesson of Jackson County and how to build Zion. The Lord's already hinting at tribulation, meaning this isn't going to end well for you, but in not ending well, maybe some future generation will learn the lesson and then it will end well for all of us. Verse 6, for this cause I have sent you that you might be obedient. Verse 19, my law shall be kept on this land. He sends them to Zion. He gives them the vision of what we're going to do. And then he says, you're here. You've got to be obedient. Verse 21, let no man break the laws of the land for that he that keepeth the laws of God hath no need to break the laws of the land. Wherefore, be subject to the powers that be until he who he reigns, whose right it is to reign. All of these foreshadowings, you have to be obedient. You have to live the law. So the lesson we have to learn is that we cannot build a celestial city if we are not a celestial people. Now watch what happens on Zion. So remember, we're summer of 31. Go to section 64. And he's already using a very painful word to describe Zion. Look at verses 35 and 36. The rebellious shall be cut off out of the land of Zion. Verse 36, verily I say unto you, the rebellious are not of the blood of Ephraim, wherefore they shall be plucked out. I mean, it hasn't been more than three months, and the Lord is already using the word rebellious to describe what's going on in Zion. Now, were they a celestial people? No, they were not. But the rule is you can't build a celestial city if you're not a celestial people, and rebellion does not belong in a celestial people. Go to section 68, verse 31. Now I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion, for there are idlers among them, and their children are also growing up in wickedness, 
They also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. These things ought not to be and must be done away from among them. So we're just barely five months into this, five months into the building of Zion, and the Lord has already used rebellious and idle. And I'm going to say this probably a zillion times in this podcast. They were not a telestial people. They were good and wonderful and honorable. But you cannot build a celestial city if you are not a celestial people. I think there's also some historical chess pieces moving around. For example, in Section 68, this is in Ohio. And there's a lot of greediness going on with land speculation and increased prices. In 1836, a bunch of people leave the church. They're going to go down into Missouri, these dissenters. And then there's this tension about what do we do with the dissenters? And then Sidney Rigdon gives this great speech where he's like, we've got to root them out. We've got to kick them out. And the saints get involved in some things, um, being mean to the dissenters, even some illegal things. We'll talk a lot about this when we get to the Mormon War. So there's several kickouts. We're kicked out of Jackson County in 33, but we're kicked out of Missouri in 38. And so... Bryce is doing big picture in this podcast. We're talking about big picture of the Missouri area. I think what Bryce is saying is collectively the saints would have been just fine had we not had those issues. But there were specific people doing this, but not necessarily the whole church was rebellious. But there was enough of it that the Lord's calling it out. So this is a difficult thing where we look through the lens of history and the lens of scripture, and then sometimes the question arises, well, which people are we talking about? So just know, if we talk about everything in here, the podcast will be nine hours long. So our goal is to do big picture, and so just be patient with and us. And focus on the lesson that you and I need to learn today. And again, when the Lord uses the word rebellious and idle, he's not necessarily saying they were committing celestial sins. This was not a celestial people. So turn with me to 84. There seems kind of be a hint here about what's going on, not only in Zion, but among all the members of the church. And I worry that this is still true, and we'll never build Zion until this is no longer true. Notice in verse 54 through 58, your minds in times have been darkened because of unbelief and because you have treated lightly the things you have received. So he uses rebellion. He says, idlers, And now all of a sudden, there's something very important we've treated lightly. Verse 55, that vanity and unbelief have brought the whole church under condemnation, and this condemnation resteth upon the children of Zion, even all. And they shall remain under this condemnation until they repent and remember the new covenant. Even the Book of Mormon and the former commandments which I have given them, not only to say but to do. It's not just testifying of the Book of Mormon. It's not just believing in the Book of Mormon. It's becoming the Book of Mormon. It's doing the Book of Mormon. And then verse 58, that they may bring forth fruit, meet for their father's kingdom. Otherwise, there remaineth a scourge and a judgment to be poured out upon the children of Zion. Until we take more seriously the things that we've been given, and not just to say them, but to do them. We will never build Zion. You cannot build Zion and take lightly the Book of Mormon. 
Next, let's go to section 85, kind of an idea that we need to correct. Verse 3, it is contrary to the will and commandment of God that those who receive not their inheritance by consecration, agreeable to this law, which he has given, that he may tithe his people and prepare them against the day of vengeance and burning, should have their names enrolled with the people of God. In other words, it seems like some people were trying to get into Zion, but wanted to avoid consecration. And the Lord says, no, it is contrary to the will of God that you join Zion. You cannot have an inheritance in Zion and enjoy all the blessings of Zion and think you can sneak past consecration. Doesn't work that way. But again, what's in the heart of the people in Zion? What, what does that suggest? They wanted to be good, but not consecrated. And the Lord says it doesn't work. You cannot have an inheritance in Zion unless you fully embrace the law of the celestial kingdom, including consecration. So now go to section 97. The, the persecution has begun. The mob has already attacked. The leaders have been tarred and feathered. They've signed an agreement to leave. It sure seems that section 97 gives them an out. Maybe you read it differently than I do, but I think even now, after the tarring and the feathering, they still have an out. Verse 9, we get that hint, I, the Lord, will cause them to bring forth a very fruitful tree which is planted in a goodly land. Verse 10, it is my will that a house should be built unto me in the land of Zion. Verse 11, build it quickly. Now verse 18, if Zion do these things, she shall prosper and spread herself and become very glorious very great and very terrible. And then verse 25, Zion shall escape if she observe to do all things whatsoever I have commanded her. Maybe I read this wrong, but it sure sounds to me like even at this stage, after the agreement to leave has been signed, the Lord says, I'll give you an out. We can still build Zion. We can still do it. Build a temple and build it quickly. Zion shall escape if she observed to do the things which I have commanded her. Well, there is no Jackson County Temple yet. They did not build it. In section 95, when they got rebuked for not building a temple in Kirtland, Four days after section 95 was given, Hiram Smith goes out and starts digging the foundation with his bare hands. But in Jackson County, they didn't build the temple. The northern tribes in the Old Testament were sent a message from Hezekiah, come back to the temple and you'll be spared. And they didn't come to the temple. And once again, in Jackson County, build a temple and Zion shall escape. And they didn't build a temple. So what's the lesson? Go to section 101. The Lord is going to answer the question, why? Why didn't they build a temple? We can learn from their failure. We owe it to them. 
So verse 6, I say unto you, there, are jar- there were jarrings and contentions and envyings and strifes and lustful and covetous desires among them. Therefore, by these things, they polluted their inheritance. They were slow to hearken unto the Lord their God. Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers, to answer them in the day of their trouble. In the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel, but in the day of their trouble of necessity, they feel after me. You have to learn to obey God in the day of peace. Everyone obeys God in the day of trouble when they need him so badly. But celestial people obey God in the day of peace. Celestial people have overcome jarrings and contentions and envyings and strife and lustful and covetous desires. A celestial people who's worthy to build a celestial city are not caught up on those things. So then the Lord gives a parable. Verse 43, I will show unto you a parable that you may know my will concerning the redemption of Zion. Now, are you listening, modern-day Latter-day Saints? A certain nobleman had a spot of land, very choice. And he said unto his servant, Go ye into my vineyard, even upon this very choice piece of land, and, look at our word, plant twelve olive trees. See that connection? Go into this very special place and plant twelve olive trees. And set watch men round about them. That's plural. So down on the ground level, you've got watch men. And build a tower that one may overlook the land round about. To be a watch man, that's singular. So have watch men around you, but build a tower and have a watch man upon the tower. Now, the tower is a very clear reference to the temple, and the watch man is a clear reference to the prophet. Build a tower and put a watchman upon the tower that mine olive trees may not be broken down when the enemy shall come. Not if, when the enemy shall come to spoil and take upon themselves the fruit of my vineyard. Now the servants of the nobleman went and did as their Lord commanded them and planted the olive trees and built the hedge round about and set watchmen and began to build a tower. And while they were yet laying the foundation thereof, they began to reason among themselves, saying, What need hath my Lord of this tower? It's a day of peace, right? We don't need a prophet. And consulted for a long time, saying among themselves, What need hath my Lord of this tower, seeing this is a time of peace? Might not this money be given to the exchangers? There is no need of these things. And while they were at variance one with another, they became very slothful, and they hearkened not unto the commandments of God. And then the enemy came by night and broke down the hedge, and the servants of the nobleman arose and were affrighted and fled, and the enemy destroyed their works and broke down their olive trees. Now when the nobleman, the lord of the vineyard, called upon his servants, he said unto them, Why? Not why? Question mark. Why? Exclamation mark. What is the cause of this great evil? Ought not you to have done even as I commanded you? There's the question. Shouldn't you have lived a celestial life? This painful prophecy 
And after you had planted the vineyard, built the hedge round about, and set watchmen upon the walls thereof, and built the tower, and set a watchman upon the tower, and watched for my vineyard, and not have fallen asleep, lest the enemy should come upon you, behold, the watchman upon the tower would have seen the enemy while he was yet afar off. Now tell me Joseph Smith didn't see it. Looking back at all these hints about tribulation coming, the watchman did see it. But they didn't listen. You cannot build a celestial city if you're not a celestial people. So, section 103. The Lord commands the saints in Ohio to rush out to them. The impression that the Ohio saints got is we're going to go fight the bad guys and put the good guys back on their land. So, verse 4 that those who call themselves after my name, this is section 103, verse 4, that those who call themselves after my name might be chastened for a little season with a sore and grievous chastisement because they did not hearken altogether unto the precepts and commandments which I gave unto them. So he calls for, verse 22, let my servant Joseph Smith Jr. say unto the strength of my house, My young men, my middle-aged, gather yourselves together unto the land of Zion and go to Jackson County. He wants, verse 30, I want you to obtain 500. Verse 32, if you can't get 500, get 300. Verse 33, if you can't get 300, get 100. Verse 34, if you can't get 100, then don't go because you're not my people. You shall not go up to the land of Zion until you've obtained at least a hundred of the strength of my people to go up with you unto the land of Zion. Now, they got 207 men, 11 women, and 11 children. And that journey from Kirtland, Ohio to Jackson County is called Zion's Camp. One of the great moments of church history. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about Zion's Camp when we get there. In section 105, they are almost to their destination. And now I call upon every Latter-day Saint to hear the Lord's message. This is what we have to walk away from the Doctrine and Covenants knowing. Almost within reach of Jackson County, the Lord stops them and says in verse 2, Were it not for the transgressions of my people, Speaking concerning the church and not individuals. He's not calling anyone out. But speaking for the church and not any individuals, they might have been redeemed even now. Were it not for the transgression of my people, we could have perhaps built that city. Verse 3, Behold, they have not learned to be obedient to the things which I required at their hands, but are full of all manner of evil and do not impart of their substance as become the saints to the poor and the afflicted among them. This is what I've been saying all along. And they are not united according to the union required of the law of the celestial kingdom. Now the Lord's going to say it. Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Now, Mike and I have talked about the glory of Zion, the safety of Zion, the protection of Zion. So, verse 6, my people must be chastened until they learn obedience, if it must needs be by the things which they suffer. 
Now, let me be very clear. The Lord doesn't punish us when we sin like that. I mean, this is a different topic. A lot of people read that and say, oh, well, the Lord does bad things to people who don't do good. No, he's saying, as a people, we are not ready to build the city of Zion because we're not celestial. Therefore, we have to learn to be celestial, even if that means as a people, we suffer and we are chastened. So verse 9, 10, 11, therefore, in consequence of transgression of my people, It is expedient in me that mine elders should wait for a little season for the redemption of Zion. In 1834, the Lord pushed the pause button. We're going to stop. We're not going to build Zion. It is expedient in me that mine elders should wait for a little season. Verse 10, that they themselves may be prepared. Now, do you see here the reason you and I are where we're at? to pick up where they failed. We have to learn what the Lord is about to say, that they themselves may be prepared, that my people may be taught more perfectly and have experience and know more perfectly concerning their duty and the things which I require at their hands. And it will not, cannot happen until what in verse 11? My people will never be prepared to build Zion until they are endowed with power from on high. We have to build temples. And if we have to build them, let's build them 20 at a time. In the temple, we will learn to be a celestial people. And if we live up to that, we can build Zion. So verse 13, we are still waiting for a little season. That little season is almost 200 years old. So what's the purpose of the little season? Clearly, what the Lord is saying is we have to get better. And temples are the answer. But there's another one. Notice in verse 26. And now I say unto you, my friends, in this way you may find favor in the eyes of the Lord until the army of Israel becomes very great. End of verse 27, we need to gather up the strength of mine house. And then in verse 31, but first let my army become great and let it be sanctified before me that it may become fair as the sun, clear as the moon, and that her banners may be terrible unto all nations. In other words, not only do we have to become better, we have to become bigger. We don't have the size we need to build Zion. So go gather them out. So waiting for a little season has been a call for missionary work and temple work. We have got to get bigger, and we've got to get better. And the only way we're going to get bigger is if we preach the gospel. And the only way we're going to get better is if we build and make temple covenants and then keep them. The temple will teach us how to be a celestial people. So we are still in the little season. So preach the gospel and gather up my army and build temples. Zion is on hold while we get bigger and better. Are you going to be one of them? Will it start with you? Will you preach the gospel? Will you be one of the ones that gathers in the army? 
Will you make and keep temple covenants? Will you become a celestial person as taught to us in the temple? Will you join the cause? The Lord is waiting and preparing and teaching and tutoring. And when he finally has a celestial people, he will build a celestial city. So that's a quick overview. Now in section 57, when they identify Zion, I think all of us need to read the rest of the Doctrine and Covenants with very careful eyes to know what we need to do to be successful in the building of Zion. We need to act more celestial and treat people more celestially. We need to be unified. We need to obey the laws the Lord poured out in section 42. We should not speak evil of our neighbor or do him any harm. We shouldn't have pride. We should love our spouse with all our heart. We should live together in love in so much that we weep for the loss of them that died. Do you see how all the Doctrine and Covenants is coming together? We must become a celestial people in order to build this wonderful celestial city that will bring us safety and protection in the days ahead. All right, there's our overview. Now let's go back and jump into the individual sections of this week, 51 through 57. There's some wonderful nuggets of truth that we need to pick up this week. If you're sitting at home going, okay, what just happened? Bryce covered so much material. Never fear. Once again, we'll put those in the show notes, all those verses that Bryce covered with just a little brief description. So you can go through your scriptures and just take your time going through this because I think it's worth your time to see the big picture of the Doctrine and Covenants and how the Lord is speaking to the saints. And I appreciate how Bryce showed, even before section 57 pops up and the Lord says, here it is, there were enough hints in there that if you had eyes to see, you could see it. So that's really good. So we're going to go a little bit more in the sections now. So we're in section 51, and this revelation is given to Bishop Edward Partridge. And essentially, he has to decide how he's going to make consecration work in Ohio. I remind you that back in section 42, the Lord has commanded them to live the law of consecration, and it falls upon the bishop's shoulders to deal with individuals as they consecrate their property. Remember, the three parts of consecration were, I consecrate what I have to the church, I receive back a stewardship, and then from then on, I give my surplus to the church, and we continue to live that way. So now the details of how to do that fall upon the bishop, and that was a heavy responsibility. Hence, section 51 gives Edward Partridge some instructions. Yeah, to make sure that everybody gets what they need. Verse 5, the middle of the verse, that the poor and needy are taken care of. Also, I want to draw your attention to verse 3. It says, let my servant Edward Partridge and those whom he has chosen and whom I am well pleased appoint unto this people their portion. The two people that he's going to choose as his counselors are a big deal in church history. One of them we'll talk about today. One of them we'll talk about when we get to the Mormon War of 1838. The one we're going to talk about today is Isaac Morley. There are some things that take place on his farm and around his land that are really significant. And we're going to end this podcast talking about his experience. The other individual is John Coral, and he is a very faithful member of the church that unfortunately in 1838 in the Mormon War 
for many reasons, John Coral has uh, to be disaffected from the church. One of them is that expectation of Zion because it isn't built. He writes extensively, and we'll quote his own words where he essentially says, it didn't happen, and he's disappointed. And other saints felt that disappointment, but they stayed true. So those are his counselors, John Coral and Isaac Morley. And I love that it, as soon as he names those that you're going to do it with, he, he kind of gives three criteria for deciding what stewardship a member receives. And I love this list. So I'm going to consecrate to the bishop, and then I'm going to receive back from the bishop a stewardship equal according to my family, according to my circumstances, and according to my wants and needs. This was a whole lot of discussion and back and forth, and here's what my circumstance is, here's where my family is, and that put a lot of responsibility on the bishop to decide what portion I received as a stewardship. Yeah. So he asked Joseph, and he said, tell me, give me some guidance, give me some direction. And although this isn't in canonized scripture, I think this direction is very worth looking at because this is Joseph's words on how to make this work. He writes and he says to Edward, to condescend to particulars, I will tell you that every man must be his own judge how much he should receive and how much he should suffer to remain in the hands of the bishop. I speak of those who consecrate more than they need for the support of themselves and their families. The matter of consecration must be done by the mutual consent of both parties. For to give the bishop the power to say how much every man shall have, and he be obliged to comply with the bishop's judgment— is giving to the bishop more power than a king. And upon the other hand, to let every man say how much he needs and the bishop be obliged to comply with his judgment is to throw Zion into confusion and make a slave of the bishop. The fact is, there must be a balance or an equilibrium of power between the bishop and the people, and thus harmony and goodwill may be preserved among you. Therefore, those persons consecrating property to the bishop in Zion and then receiving an inheritance back must reasonably show to the bishop that they need as much as they claim. But in case the two parties cannot come to a mutual agreement, the bishop is to have nothing to do about receiving such consecration, and the case must be laid before a council of twelve high priests, the bishop not being one of the council, but he is to lay the case before them. Now, the principles that Joseph is laying out apply to so many things, not just consecration, but on a macro level, think about, this is just where my brain goes, when you think about economic systems, there's this tension of balance. We see this with land use issues. We see this in a family. If, if mom's doing all the chores, that's not balance. And so we have to have a gathering where we get together and we fix it. And so the idea behind consecration is this balance where everybody does their part and it's as close as we can get to equal. And that's kind of like the law of heaven, how Heavenly Father works. And he hates to see this inequality. I also like to point out that under consecration, you own the property. The deed is in your name. So notice in verse 4 that the bishop shall give unto him a writing that shall secure unto him his portion that he shall hold it, even this right and this inheritance. So you own. It's not that the church owns the property under consecration. 
You give the property to the church, and then when they give you back a stewardship, you own that property. So in verse 5, if he transgress and is not accounted worthy to belong to the church, he shall not have power to claim that portion which he has consecrated unto the bishop for the poor and the needy. So you don't get back what you gave to the church. You shall not retain the gift. But you shall only have claim upon that portion that is deeded unto him. So if you give to the church something, it belongs to the church. What they give back to you belongs to you. Even if you're excommunicated, you still own that property. Now that will become an issue for Oliver Cowdery because Oliver Cowdery will sell his property that he was deeded by the church. But the reality is Oliver Cowdery owned that property. It didn't belong to the church. Excellent. Thanks, Bryce. I like that. One last thing on section 51 that I want to look at is just briefly verse 16, where the Lord says, I consecrate unto them this land for a little season until I, the Lord, shall provide for them otherwise and command them to go hence. And you might want to write this in your scriptures next to verse 16, and it's not in the footnote. So you might want to write section 64, verse 21. So I'm just going to go there. In section 64, September 11th, 1831, the Lord is speaking to the saints in Ohio, and he says, I will not that my servant Frederick G. Williams should sell his farm, for I, the Lord, will to retain a stronghold in the land of Kirtland for the space of five years, in the which I will not overthrow the wicked, that thereby I may save some. So if you do the math, September 11th, 1831, By 1836, there's enough contention in Kirtland. There's enough dissension going on in Kirtland that Joseph and Emma will leave Kirtland and they will go to Missouri, never to return to Ohio. It seems interesting to me and prophetic where the Lord says, and this is a principle I think we can all learn from, is that we need to grow where we're planted, but don't get too comfortable. Like sometimes we've got to move and sometimes the Lord will push us in a direction that we didn't see. And I love in verse 17, back in section 51, the hour and the day is not given unto them. Wherefore, let them act upon this land as for years. I like that, Bryce. What what does that mean to you? I think the Lord says, look, this isn't your permanent home, but pretend it is. Make it a home. And I think that applies to our callings, for example. I really like that. It's like, okay, right now you're this in the church. This is your current calling. And it won't be forever. And the day you're going to be released hasn't been revealed yet. But you just act in this calling as if it's going to last for the rest of your life. But know that it's not. And I love that attitude. Act upon this land as for years. I think it's one of those things you would just kind of skip over if you read it. But you you look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, that's great life counsel. Yeah. Just good stuff. Think about all the missionaries, all the transfers that happen in the mission field. And, and missionaries know they're not going to be an area forever. And if they hold back, because I know I'm not going to be there, they're not going to enjoy the full fruits of being there. Let your heart open up. Act as if that's the only area you're ever going to be in. I love what Ammon says to Lamoni. I just want to dwell among you, perhaps even until the day I die. So take everything the Lord gives you, knowing it probably won't last, but acting as if it will. Yeah. Section 52. The call to Missouri. June 6, 1831. So there's a conference held in Kirtland. This is the first ordination of high priests in this dispensation. 
And that's going to happen at the Isaac and Lucy Morley Farm. Now, if you go on an Ohio church history trip, I highly encourage you to go visit the Morley Farm. And one of the things about the Morley Farm that I really like is the missionaries took us on a tour of the land behind the Morley Farm. And on that land was an old schoolhouse. And it's not there anymore, but you can stand in the location where it was. And we linked a picture of it in the show notes. And some really neat things happened there. In this revelation, several brethren are told to go on missions. Verse 9 says that they will teach by the comforter. And that word in John, paraclete, is is a word that means the person that's going to stand right next to you, an advocate with the Father, defending you in this courtroom setting. That is the paraclete. That's, that's the individual who, if I was being tried for something that I didn't do, or if I did, I would have my advocate right next to me. And that's the word over and over again, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, translated in English as comforter. And I really like that word. If you think about it, for John Murdoch and Hiram Smith and these other individuals preaching the word, having the Holy Ghost with you as a person next to you, as an advocate, so important. And so in this revelation, verse 14, talking about a pattern in all things and Satan is going forth deceiving the people. And we're going to have the fruit, verse 18, to show that we are doing his will. People had views of what the Holy Ghost was and how it operated. And essentially what the Lord is saying here again is, I'm going to give you a pattern for how you can know truth. Look at the middle of verse 17. If they bring forth fruits of praise and wisdom, and if they don't bring forth fruits, verse 18, then you know it's not right. In other words, do you preach the gospel the Lord's way? Now, this is so important historically, but it's not in the section. So in this revelation, there's a bunch of people that are ordained as high priests. And I'm not going to read all their names, but you can go to the show notes and you can read about who they were. But I want to share with you the experience that they had. So if you go to the picture of the trees in the show notes, you can see this little hill with these trees on it. And there was a little log schoolhouse there. And on Friday, June 3rd, 1831, a bunch of the brethren that are in this section were there for a special priesthood meeting, and many of them were ordained high priests. And then Joseph stood up and he said this, brethren, we're going to see God the Father. And he introduced several of them to the Father and the Son. And in the historical record, we read this, that Joseph, when he was speaking to the elders, that he stepped out on the floor of the, of the schoolhouse, and he said, I see God and Jesus Christ at his right hand. And then he says, you know, I could die right now. I feel the Spirit so strongly. And John Whitmer, who was the official church historian at the time, reported the following on that occasion. He said, the Spirit of the Lord fell upon Joseph in an unusual manner. He prophesied many things, things that I have not even written. And after he prophesied, he laid his hands upon Lyman White and ordained him to the high priesthood after the order of the Son of God. And then the Spirit fell upon Lyman, and he prophesied concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. And then he, Lyman, saw the heavens opened and the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his brother and the saints." And he said that God would work a work in these last days that tongue cannot express and the mind is not capable to conceive and the glory of the Lord shone around. Now, 
a couple years later in 1834, some of the missionaries had gotten back from their missions and they were prophesying about Zion. And it's a little room, according to the historical sources, about 14 feet square. And after they were done testifying in this little room and they're all kind of in there nice and tight, shoulder to shoulder, we read this, that Joseph stood up, Joseph Smith, and he stood up and he said, brethren, I've been very much edified and instructed in your testimonies here tonight, meaning about Zion and the gathering of Israel. Joseph said, I want to say to you before the Lord that you know no more concerning the destinies of this church and kingdom than a babe upon its mother's lap. You do not comprehend it. I was rather surprised, he said. It is only a little handful of priesthood you see here tonight, but this church will fill North and South America. It will fill the whole world. Mike, I have dreamed so many times of going back in time and being in that meeting and hearing Joseph Smith say that prophecy. And my hand shoots up. Now, this is my dream. My hand shoots up and I say, oh, Brother Joseph, Brother Joseph, I'm from 2021 and I've seen it. We just announced 20 new temples all over the world. We have missionaries preaching the gospel. Joseph, I've seen it. And in my dream, Joseph Smith looks at me and says, Bryce, you know no more concerning the destiny of this church than a babe on its mother's lap. Even from 2021, you don't comprehend it. And I really think Joseph had the vision. And we don't even comprehend where we're going and what we're going to do. But we've got to rise up and be a celestial people. It, we're so much further ahead than we were in 1834. I remember being in the MTC and all these elders and sisters stood up and they sang a missionary hymn. And I remember feeling the spirit. It was palpable. It was electric. And I remember when the conference center was built and I went to a session of conference and everybody is singing The spirit was just so incredible, totally different than a normal experience of singing a hymn for me. And I imagine that Joseph sees this and is well-pleased, and I'm with you, Bryce. I think that there's a lot more to come, and all of this is happening right here in this little schoolhouse behind their farm. Now, Isaac and his wife, Lucy, do other things. They, They make accommodations for Joseph to live. And there's a lot of revelation that happens here at the Morley Farm, and it really is a beautiful place. I appreciate how the church has restored it. One thing I want to talk about in this section that probably would get missed in a lot of circumstances, but to me is a big deal. If you go to section 52, verse 37, it's the calling of Simon's writer, and he's called to go on a mission. And you just kind of read it, and you go over it, and you just keep going. But historically, he becomes an enemy of the church. And he writes some things against the church because his name was misspelled in the Revelation. Now, this is what historian James Holmes says. He says, both in letter that he received and in his official commission to go preach the gospel, Simon's last name was spelled R-I-D-E-R, writer, instead of R-Y-D-E-R. And he thought if the Spirit came through Joseph, that it wouldn't make a mistake. And I call this cultural packaging. In fact, I wrote a short post called Scripture Comes in Its Cultural Packaging. And what I mean by that is every single prophet, every single person who's ever written Scripture, the poets, the prophets, the writers, the authors, they all lived in a time and place. And even Paul, 
the great apostle Paul in the New Testament who wrote so many books. I'm going to read a translation from not the King James, but the New International Version because it reads a little bit clearer. But the passage I'm going to read is 1 Corinthians 1, 13 through 17. And this is what he writes. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanaeus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, what did he just say? He's upset with these guys. He says, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you guys except Crispus and Gaius. Oh yeah, and the house of Stephen. But outside of those guys, I really can't remember who I baptized. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. So what we have here in our scripture is canonized text of a prophet, and he's kind of railing on a group of people. And in the midst of his rant, he can't even remember who he baptized and who he didn't. In other words, we have canonized misremembering of a prophet. And I love it. I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome scripture. But it certainly isn't edited and polished. But the assumption is, if a man speaks for God, everything he speaks is from God. There's the assumption that a prophet is always a prophet and never a mortal man. Yeah. And the truth is the exact opposite, that prophets are always human beings who are frail and make mistakes. And so if you expect a prophet to be perfect— you're going to have some struggles because they're not. Moses wasn't perfect, and that was a major struggle for the people in his day. Joseph Smith wasn't perfect, and that was a major struggle for the people in his day. Prophets aren't perfect. One of my favorite things in my life is that when I received my patriarchal blessing back from the patriarch, my name was misspelled. He misspelled my name in my patriarchal blessing. Now, I, like Simon's writer, could make the decision that that nullifies everything in my blessing. If he can't spell my name right, then he can't get revelation. But the reality is, that is pure revelation to me. So many things in my blessing have been fulfilled. Things he said that there's no way he could have known about me, and yet he misspelled my name. And so this is the challenge that we have to face with prophets, is they are not perfect. And Joseph Smith misspelled Simon's writer's name on his mission call. And by the way, Bryce, just go to the Joseph Smith papers and everybody's misspelling stuff. I mean, Wilford Woodruff's journals are amazing, but he doesn't spell the way we spell. That's just how it was. Now, the irony is that this this is the irony. It's kind of poetic justice, actually. (laughs) I just, I can't help myself. So in this article, and I give you the, the picture of Simon's writer's tombstone, it says, age 78 years. And then underneath the date of his birth and death, it says, elder of the disciple church from the time of its organization until his death. And it spells disciple D-E-C-I-P-L-E. It misspells the word disciple on his tombstone. I can't help myself, but I just think that's kind of fun. So anyway, that's a little bit on cultural packaging. Just know we all have cultural bias. Everyone does. And in that time period, they had views, and 
and Paul had his, and on we go. But Scripture is Scripture. It's a God-breathed text. It's gold and clay. God is the gold. We are the clay. And when we pick up the Scriptures, we're picking up gold and clay. But the gold and clay mix is beautiful, and I frankly am a huge fan of the clay. I love the humanness of church history and the messiness of Scripture and those things, but I love the gold as well. But the expectation that it's all gold caused Simon's writer— to falter. I love that in the very title page of the Book of Mormon, Moroni, who saw our day, says, If there are faults, they are the mistakes of men, wherefore condemn not the things of God. That comes right off the title page. And I think that is a shouting reminder to everyone in the latter days don't reject the things of God because of the mistakes of men. So Joseph is guilty of a spelling error. It doesn't nullify the fact that he was a prophet of God. Don't reject the things of God because of the mistakes of men. Yep. Excellent. 53, Sidney Gilbert didn't get called on a mission like so many others. And so he went to Joseph and he said, hey, does the Lord have a calling for me? And the Lord said, yep, you sure do. Verse 5, take your journey with my servant Joseph and Sidney. So he does. So that's kind of a, I, I think the principle behind section 53 is, it is good and noble to seek to want to build the kingdom. And if you don't get a calling or if you don't get a, a ministering assignment, it's okay to go to the person in charge and say, hey, I'm How here. How can I help? I'm what ready can to I go. do? Yeah, that's 53. And Sidney Gilbert is a wonderful character in church history, and there's a whole lot of information out there, but there's just no way we can in this podcast highlight every worthy person, so we'll just leave Sidney Gilbert for your own study, as well as W.W. W. Phelps in Section 55. And we put W.W. W. Phelps' stuff in the show notes, at least enough to kind of get your bearings on what's going on with him. 54 is going to kind of tie in with 56, Versus basically one through six. And so here's kind of the big picture context of what's going on in those sections. If you go to 54, verse two, behold, verily I say unto you, my servant Newell Knight, you shall stand fast in the office whereunto I have appointed you, where he is called to be in charge of the Colville Saints. Now they're establishing their lands and working on Lehman Copley's farm. But if you look in the section heading, it says that after his mission to the Shakers, Lehman Copley broke his covenant. And that 750-plus acre farm that the Colville Saints had improved, not only does he kick the Colville Saints off his farm, but he actually sends them a bill. For the penalty of improving his farm, we had to pay a fine. And I find that fascinating. And so if you look in verse 4, the covenant has been broken, verse 4, and it's become void and of none effect. And then to me, verse 5 is a message from the Lord to Leman. Woe to him by whom this offense cometh, for it had been better for him that he had been drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, the Lord's going to use that in the New Testament for those that do harm to children. And so I, I, I wonder, I don't know, I just wonder if there were some lots of hardship beyond like a cursory reading as it relates to children in this context. Yeah. One important thing to note in 54 is that that Colville branch that was on the Lehman Copley farm and gets kicked off are now known as the Thompson branch because they were in Thompson, Ohio. So now the Thompson branch in verse 8, because they got kicked off their land, they're now going to head to Missouri. 
and Newell Knight's mission call is going to be changed in section 56, and Newell Knight, because of the rebellion of Lehman Copley, Newell Knight will be told to stay with that Thompson branch and escort them to to Zion. I hope that makes sense. The historical context behind section 56. So if you look in verse 3, Behold, I the Lord command, he that will not obey shall be cut off in mine own due time after I have commanded, and the commandment is broken. Wherefore, I the Lord command and revoke as it seemeth me good. We're going to see that a few times in the Doctrine and Covenants. In other words, the Lord commanded, but he revoked because Lehman kicked him off the land. And by the way, Lehman had his agency. So there we go. All this is to be answered upon the heads of the rebellious, saith the Lord. I'm going to take that word rebellious, and I'm going to pin that on Lehman. And then if you go to the middle of verse 6, in consequence of the stiff-neckedness of my people, which are in Thompson, and their rebellions, I'm going to say that verse 6 is the revoking of the command of Lehman to consecrate his land. Yeah, it kind of makes it sound that Newell Knight had his assignment changed because Newell Knight was part of the rebellion. But Newell Knight has his mission call changed to escort the saints to Jackson County because of the rebellion of Lehman Copley and the kicking of them off his lands. Which kind of ties into verse 15 and 16. Your hearts are not satisfied, and ye obey not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Woe unto you, rich men, that will not give your substance to the poor, for your riches will canker your souls. And then it goes on about their soul not being saved and and the summer being passed. I think that's a message to Lehman, but I also think it's a big picture message about the law of consecration, because there's kind of two polar extremes. On one end, verse 16, there's the rich. On the other end of the extreme is the poor. And both sides need to do their share. And so that's kind of section 56. 57, Bryce really did a good job of laying out Zion. And this is the center place. That's verse 3, the place for the city of Zion, verse 2. There are some really good quotes in the show notes. This one is one of my favorites. And it's really simple, but it's by Bruce McConkie. And he said, as of now, the Lord has laid upon us the responsibility to lay the foundation for that which is to be. We have been commissioned to prepare a people for the second coming of the Son of Man. We've been called to preach the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. We've been commanded to lay the foundation of Zion and to get all things ready for the return of him who shall again crown the holy city with his presence and glory. Our call to all men everywhere is this, come to Zion. Come to Zion and within her walls rejoice. And then later he says, a stake has geographical boundaries. To create a stake is like founding a city of holiness. Every stake on earth is the gathering place for the lost sheep of Israel who live in its area. The gathering place for the Peruvians is in the stakes of Zion in Peru or in the places which soon will become stakes. The gathering place of Chileans is Chile. For Bolivians, Bolivia. For Koreans, it is in Korea. And so it goes through all the length and breadth of the earth. Scattered Israel and every nation is called to gather to the fold of Christ, to the stakes of Zion, as such are established in their nations. And so if you're wondering, you know, let's say you live in Holland, do I need to move to Missouri? Do I need to move to the United States of America? Today in 2021, the answer is build Zion in Holland. Yep. Now, if you lived in 1850... It was come to Zion in Utah. But today, build it where you are. 
roll up your sleeves and build Zion where you are. Don't get so caught up on where Zion is going to be built or when Zion is going to be built. Spend your days focused on being the kind of people worthy to build the city. And if I live in Holland and I'm going to become a celestial person in Holland, I will let everything else work itself out. Where the city is built, how we all move there, what are the details associated with it, what's the timing, you know what, all of that will come. Right now, during the little season, we need to get bigger and we need to get better. And it starts with temple covenants. Yep. Excellent. Now, there are so many lives that are woven through these sections. One of them is W.W. Phelps, who we haven't even touched. John Corll's another one. And another name that I want to talk about is Isaac and Lucy Morley. So it's 1831. Isaac Morley is 45 at this time. So he's older than Joseph by several years. And his wife, she's also 45. They are the opposite of Lehman. They actually consecrate their farm as directed. Isaac and Lucy invited many converts of the church to live on his 80-acre farm, and he even built a small home for Joseph and Emma shortly after Joseph gets to Ohio. Isaac and Lucy Morley, they moved with the saints to Missouri after the saints left Ohio, and then he even went to Nauvoo in a town that's called Yelrome. Now, what's funny is if you take the name Yelrome and you flip it backwards, it actually kind of looks like Morley. Um, anyway, that's just fun. They later go west in 1847 with the saints when the saints leave to Salt Lake. But Isaac's wife, Lucy, never makes it. She would die from exposure and the general hardships of the trip. Right after she gets to winter quarters, she dies on January 3rd, 1847. Historian Richard Morley reports that three of his lovely grandchildren who died from proper lack of food and medical knowledge were buried in graves next to the one occupied by their grandmother. So think about this. You're Isaac Morley. It's 1847. So now you're in your 60s. Your wife dies, but not just your wife, but three of your grandchildren there at winter quarters. That must have had a deep effect on him, but it didn't affect his faith. He went west with the saints, and he eventually settles in a place called San Pete County with about 224 other settlers there in, in 1849. And reportedly, when he saw the Manti Valley for the first time, he said, this is the place. This is where I will stay. And I can say this as well. It's beautiful. He's going to die at the age of 79. Isaac Morley was a patriarch as well as a member of the Utah Legislative Council. And Isaac Morley had a really interesting conversation that I want to share with you. You see, Isaac Morley was well respected by the people in his community, and he was a man of great faith. And one day, he met a young man who was an orphan. And this orphan's name was Daniel Webster Jones. So here was a man who was born and raised in the Southeast. And then when he was 11, he became an orphan. So when he's 16, he joins the army in a company of volunteer soldiers who went to fight the U.S.-Mexican War. And according to his history, he writes, gambling, swearing, fighting, and other rough conduct were part of his everyday activity. And during the three years he spent in Mexico, 
with the army. He says that he took part in many ways in the wild, reckless life that was common in the army. But then he says this, he says, I still would not partake of strong drink and other of the worst vices that he saw many of the other guys in the army doing. He chose not to do this according to his words because he felt in his heart that he might be condemned. And he often asked God to help him see what was right, how he could serve him. He said things like, I want to know you, Lord. Help me know how to serve you and that I may not be deceived. And then he leaves Mexico in 1850 with a large trading company going to Salt Lake. And on the way, he had a gun accident and he was really wounded, but he managed to survive until he came to a settlement in Provo where some saints administered relief to him. He says that some of the travelers that were coming from Mexico in the army would ridicule the saints. But when he overheard some of his friends reading the Doctrine and Covenants and making fun of it, he thought of his prayer from earlier in his life where he asked for God to show him the way. And he remembers even asking God for revelation. And then he says he left his companions and he moved in with a Latter-day Saint family and started asking them questions, peppering them about the gospel as he recovered from this gun accident that he experienced. And then he says, Everyone was kind and treated me with confidence. I listened to the elders preaching and soon concluded that they were honest and knew it. He says, I was determined if possible not to be fooled. Therefore, I commenced to watch them very closely. So he must have been curious as he met these members and wondered if they were really sincere. So he watched them for a number of days. And then he says, when he learned about the Book of Mormon, quote, it seemed natural to me to just believe it. I cannot remember ever questioning in my mind the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon or that Joseph was a prophet. The question always was, are the Mormons sincere and can I be one of them? When he decided that he could be, perhaps, that's when he met Isaac Morley. Isaac Morley, who was one of the first converts to the church in Ohio at the time, was living there in southern Utah. This 20-year-old man approaches Isaac Morley and just starts asking him some questions. And I think from reading his words, I think what Daniel Webster Jones really wanted to know was, could he do it? Could he be a Latter-day Saint? He seems to not be questioning that the Book of Mormon's true or that God has prophets or that there's a God in heaven. But I think the real question he's asking is, how am I going to navigate this? You see, imagine you spend the bulk of your life as an orphan. You've been in the Mexican War. You've kind of seen the world, and yet you approach this man who seems wise, wiser than anyone you know. And by the way, think about Isaac Morley. Like, he's seen stuff. Like, we've been kicked out of Ohio, Missouri, Nauvoo. He's buried his wife. He's buried his grandchildren. He's established a farm and a home, and he's a well-respected man. He's kind of like the Yoda, if we're going to compare church history to Star Wars, right? And here's this young man, 20 years old, approaching him. Daniel approaches Isaac. Isaac's outside chopping wood. It's the middle of winter. And obviously, you have to chop wood because they don't have any other way to stay warm. And then he drops this line. He says, I started talking to him. And as I was talking to him, I told him, you know, what I really think I want to do, Isaac, is I want to go to California. I want to go because the gold rush was on, right? 
the newspapers were talking about how there was a fortune in gold. And so in his mind, he's thinking, if I go to California and just get a bunch of gold, then I'll have security. Then I'll come back and I'll get baptized. And then I'll try to live the gospel. We don't know the particulars of the conversation, but at some point, Daniel Jones feels the spirit. The Holy Ghost comes over him. And he says that he was touched by the spirit of conversion and it came out of his mouth. He says, you know what? I should be baptized. And I love Isaac's reply. He says, Father Morley replied, well, I've been ready. Here's my ax to go cut the ice. I've been expecting you to ask this question for some time. And so Father Morley with his ax goes and chops ice in this local pond. And then he baptizes Daniel Webster Jones right there in January of 1851. This 20-year-old man who's been to Mexico, he's been in the war, doesn't have parents, has now been baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We read in the historical record that they chop a hole through a foot of ice when he gets baptized. Dan Jones writes in the historical record, he confided with a friend that he'd never talked about his intentions, and he didn't know why President Morley was expecting him to come and request baptism. And so he was kind of surprised when he said, I've been expecting this. Well, after his baptism, Daniel Jones spent 23 years in and around Utah working to build up the kingdom. But in 1874, he was called by Brigham Young to serve a mission in Mexico. And over the course of his days, Daniel Webster Jones would work on the translation of the Book of Mormon, translating it into Spanish. He talked about how it was such an effort. He wanted to to capture the essence of the Book of Mormon in the Spanish language, and he felt this pressure to get it right. It was so important to him. So when he was translating, he worked with a man named Milton Trejo, and this man had way more experience in Spanish than he did. And Trejo remarked that in many instances, he was impressed that Daniel Jones had a better grasp of the nuances of Spanish in their translation than he did. Jones did not want to tell Trejo how he was able to catch mistakes as they worked through the text. He remarked, I felt a sensation in the center of my forehead as though there was a fine thread being pulled smoothly out. When there was a mistake in the translation, the smoothness would be interrupted as though a small knot was passing out through his forehead. Whether I saw the mistake or not, I was so sure it was there that I would show it to my companion and ask him to correct it. When this was done, we continued on until the same thing happened again. Those are his words. That's how Daniel Jones expressed his translation of the English copy of the Book of Mormon into Spanish. And Daniel Webster Jones spent his life building the kingdom and worked diligently to make the first initial translation of the Book of Mormon in Spanish. Others would continue to work on this translation or to refine it and to make it even better. He worked on it with Trejo, and then later Trejo worked on it with James Stewart. But the initial work was done by Daniel Webster Jones, a faithful, obedient servant of the Lord who was also an orphan. The Lord is truly the God of widows and orphans. There are so many passages in the Old Testament where the Lord talks about widows and orphans and how he loves them and watches over them. And if you or someone you know has ever been touched by the Spirit reading a Spanish copy of the Book of Mormon, you can trace 
that thread of light all the way through this orphan from Missouri, who, when he was a young man, had a conversation with Isaac Morley, who owned a little farm in Ohio, who, when the Lord said to him, I want you to consecrate your farm, said, absolutely, I'll do it. And so it's my testimony that as I share this story about Isaac Morley and Daniel Webster Jones, that it impresses upon all of us the importance of having those conversations. Hey, this 20-year-old kid who's coming to talk to you, talk to him. I think the Spirit prompted him to challenge him to be baptized, and he did, and he was. And that man has literally touched millions of lives. And so in all things, may we be engaged in those little conversations. It's those moments in our lives where we really connect with the person that's in front of us and we take the time to listen. And I think about that a lot because sometimes in the mind of a 20-year-old, you might look at someone who's much advanced in age and think, well, what can they share with me? Or you might be at the other end and be the Isaac Morley with the ax in your hand and the arthritis in your fingers and think, this kid's not going to listen to me. But in this circumstance, in that one moment in time, in Manti in January of 1851, that conversation affects millions of people. And that conversation to me is a representation of what Zion is. It's that real connection. Yeah. And we really appreciate you giving your time to share these things with us. Thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. I know this was a really big overview of Zion, but we hope you can see that their challenges are a plea to you and I to be a celestial people so that when the Lord is ready, he has a people able to build that city. May we all join this wonderful cause and be the kind of people that God wants us to be. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.